Welcome to Birkegaard. Birkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard decided to start with a little uh, little chant there since it's the holiday season. Sounds a little Gregorian or uh, something. A poor copy of a Gregorian chant. I guess you need more than one for Gregorian. I don't know. I know nothing about that. Anyway, uh, welcome. Greetings. Greetings. We are in the season of Advent. Did a little search on online about uh, Advent. So Advent comes from the word in Latin, Adventus, which means coming arrival, and it's used for both the first coming of Jesus in the flesh, being born in Bethlehem, and also it's uh, used in the uh, second coming, which is an eschatological term, uh, which is the uh, teachings of end times, and Jesus to return again as conquering king, he came first as a, um, a sacrificial lamb, and then he comes back as a conquering king. The uh, interesting element, though, is he, uh, he was a conqueror as the sacrificial lamb. Uh, I just thought yesterday that when Jesus was crucified, uh, the Romans and the Jews uh, and the world in general thought it was judging Jesus. Instead, it was judging itself in terms of its vanity and its vapidity and its... Uh, violence. Uh, so Jesus is a mirror, in a sense, holding up himself and saying, I am the truth and look what you're doing to me. So it's, he's pointing back at the world and the Romans and the Jews. And uh, there's no reason to be overly anti-Semitic about the crucifixion of Jesus. There's a reality in uh, first uh, century Jerusalem that Jesus was crucified by the Jewish leadership. There's no sense in trying to hide that. But that does not mean that every Jew was against Jesus. It was the religious hierarchy that he had offended. And they were in cahoots with the Romans. Um, officially, they were enemies, and I'm sure some of them hated each other, and the Jews hated the Romans, and vice versa. Uh, but behind the scenes, there had to be a cold cooperation uh, for these two to get along because it was in their mutual benefit because they were both ruling. The Romans wanted, uh, wanted outward peace, uh, compliance to the Roman authorities. And uh, in order to do that, they needed cooperation. Again, it could have been a cold cooperation, not in any sense warm or compassionate, uh, with the Jewish leadership, and they had it. And that's what eventually led to the crucifixion of Jesus. So Advent is from um, this year. It's uh, from uh, September, November, or <laughs> September, not September, what am I saying? Sunday, November, I was trying to combine two words there. Sunday, November 27th, I could start over again, but having flaws in this podcast is one of my calling cards is that I'm not trying to be too too polished. Um, there's a place for polishedness. Uh, and I, I do start over occasionally when I'm really off on a, on a tangent that doesn't make sense. It happens occasionally. But small mistakes and pronunciation and whatever is part of, part of what this is about uh, and blowing my nose. Let's see that in a review. Boy, this guy blows his nose a lot when he uh, when he's drinking his coffee. Today I'm drinking a Robusta from Vietnam. Just think espresso. This is like an espresso, espresso taste. Uh, it's supposed to be organic, but it doesn't have the uh, organic label on it, which is a whole process that a grower has to go through. It's very, very difficult, very costly. So it's a possibility that there's pesticides, no pesticides or insecticides are used on this, so technically it's chemical-free. I don't know that for sure. It's from Vietnam, 
which is officially a communist country, and they're good at lying to their people and lying to others. So it could be, Coffee Field could right be in a bombed out uh, area of Vietnam where we dropped ordnance and bombs and all kinds of stuff on. So who knows? I just trust that it's it's okay. So Sunday, November 27th to Saturday, uh, Saturday December 24th, that's Advent. That's the season of Advent. And there's lighting candles, and that's for the Western Church. The Eastern Church has a an equivalent of Advent, has a different name. That's just a little bit of factoids for you here. Uh, the coming of Jesus. So it's it's great in today's uh, readings. I, I've read this book um, once already, and then I read it again and with a lot more intentionality. And sometimes I go back a third time to make sure I really have done as good a job as I can on this to understand it. And uh, Sora gets in to talk a lot about Jesus today, which is somewhat interesting. He talks about the good a lot, but it's kind of indirect. You know, just take an O out of the good, and he's talking about God all the time. And I don't know exactly why he's doing that. Maybe to make it more approachable in one way, but less approachable in another. I don't quite understand but when you hear the good and, and the purity of heart is the will one thing, which is the good, remember just to take an O out of it. And he's talking about God. And uh, if you're an Orthodox Christian, you know that God is one and he's also three. Uh, there's a family of God, so to speak. And they're all equivalent. Uh, there's no lessening in the, in the Trinity. So Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's the family of or Holy Spirit. just depends on the translation, uh, but they're the Trinity. And it's talked about in like Matthew 28, when Jesus talks about the Great Commission. It's not a late invention of like the Council of Nicaea, uh, the Trinitarian idea. It's in the Gospels. Uh, it's, in, it's in the teaching of, uh, of all the Gospel writers. Uh, Paul talks about it, but it's also in John, where Jesus talks about the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to be a convictor of sin, and also to be a comforter. So conviction can be comfort. I want to get into this first, just to talk about uh, this, because I think it can be misunderstood. Jesus understands that we're flawed and we're finite. He understands that. He, he didn't come to die for good people as an example or a moral teacher. He came to die for um, lost people, uh, people that are flawed, people that are finite, and that two element of that finiteness is not a function of being fallen. It's just we're a created being. We're never going to be God. Even in a sinless state, we were never, um, we were never God in the, in the garden. No matter how you want to interpret that, uh, the Bible teaches that mankind was originally pure. We were limited. We were finite. We were a created being. Uh, special because we're made in the image of God. So we have God in us, but that doesn't mean we are God. And the temptation was to become God. That was the satanic temptation. And if you don't believe in the Garden of Eden and the snake, uh, and I do, but I think it, it can also be a story about humanity's rebellion against God's authority and originally when humanity was created. And it, it may not quite be that story in a way. It might be much worse than the story itself. Uh, they, these might be symbols. I don't know. I tend to think it's historical, of course, um, but whether it involved the talking snake and trees and fruit and all that, I tend to argue for the literal nature of that, but I think it could also be pointing to a story that's a lot darker and a lot deeper and basically symbolically means the same thing, but there was an act of rebellion against God's authority on this planet by human beings uh, from the very start of uh, creation. So whatever, whatever you believe there, I, I just don't think it's a myth in a traditional sense. 
myths have great truth in them, but they ultimately are not factual because they didn't happen. Uh, so that's the difference. The gospel and, and the Bible events are true. They're historically true, uh, but doesn't mean that if um, they don't have elements that could be mythical or correspond to mythical elements. Uh, as we get into Advent, you know, there's a lot of criticism about like, Christmas being a, a pagan holiday in like the Roman calendar or Easter. And I don't put it beyond God uh, to align the birth of his son or the, re- uh, the crucifixion or the resurrection of his son with historical seasonal calendars in the pagan world, because they were all tied to nature. Uh, a lot of these calendars were tied to things in nature, uh, like Easter is a, is a rejuvenation of creation, right? So pagans were not stupid people. They based their festivals on seasonal events around them, and I could see God capturing that in, in his own story, that he would use the same elements to tell his story of inception, creation, conception, um, crucifixion, resurrection, to parallel these pagan myths, uh, pagan stories. It's not beyond God. God is the creator, so he could do what he wants. And these, uh, these na- natural elements have a lot to do with spiritual realities, um, being, being born again or... Um, uh, you, you know, Christ coming back from the dead is like creation coming back from the fall, from fall and winter. It's it's the uh, renewal of life. So these things can have deep uh, resonance and correspondence with uh, with um, pagan pagan festivals or rituals or calendars or whatever. That doesn't bother me. God's bigger than that. And I just want to talk about that. Another thing is when uh, we're reading Soren or we hear Jesus um, say, say something in the Bible, we read what he said. It's it's really it's really it's really easy to read into the words a tone of voice, and I do this all the time. Like when Jesus tells us not to worry, I hear that kind of as, as a chastisement, you know, in my own head. I'm not saying that's what Jesus meant, but I can feel like he's kind of nagging me, or he's um, chastising me for not having faith. And, and there's a time that I think he does that. It's just so hard to infer tone, and that's why they say like emails are tricky because you can't really infer tone sometimes. It's completely different to say, you know, hey, hey, um, hey, silly man, how you doing? Versus, hey, silly man, or hey, silly man. You know, the like, tone of voice, that's not a good example, but you know what I'm saying. Women are masters of tone of voice where they say, I'm fine. Well, you know if you're... If you're a student of women at all, even beginning class, uh, Women 101, I'm fine versus I'm fine versus I'm fine is radically different. And any man that focuses on the content of that statement versus the tone is a fool. And you have to look at tone with Jesus, and it's hard to infer it. But when he tells us not to worry, I think he says it compassionately. And I think he offers comfort when he says it. Well, I think this is a true statement. This is not a matter of faith. And this is why I like the book of James so much. A lot of what he talks about is hard, but it's true. And it's actually very helpful because it can apply to our life. When Jesus says something like, don't, don't worry, you know, he says not much is needed for, for a happy life. Like if you have food and you have clothing and you have shelter, you should be happy because that's essentially what life is. You don't need all this stuff and all this accumulation and all this... Um, all this gold in your bank, whatever that looks like, it could be you know um, stocks or bonds or uh, cash in the bank, which ultimately is just like a pile of paper, and you're not going to take it with you anyway, as Jesus says. So he's just try- I think he's just trying us to get us to relax and chill out, and we shouldn't hear in that voice a chastisement or a criticism. 
I listened to a sermon recently from a, a man that I used to know many, many years ago. It's over 30 years ago. And I tracked, I tracked down these sermons because I'm going out to see a friend in um, Sacramento. Not, it's not the only reason I'm going out there. It's one of the reasons to see a guy that I used to uh, know about 35 years ago down in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And uh, it just reminded me of that entire era in my life and the people that were associated with a ministry called Church, Church Shocks, which was Church Shock, which was like a program for teenagers where we did skits and there was a preacher and there was music and bands and stuff. And it was like a Saturday Night Live uh, for Christian youth. And it was really well done. It was the most creative people I've ever been around in my entire life. And I did a couple skits. I wrote a couple skits. Uh, one was called Rambo Prayer Warrior. Another one was... Uh, uh, the Bishop of Oz. I won't get into those right now, but it got me thinking about the people that were involved with this ministry because I'm going out to see this guy in uh, over Christmas. And so I looked up the people online, and I found out that one of the leaders of Church Shock, a guy named Bob Miller, had passed away about hmm, seven years ago from cancer, and I was shocked because I didn't know it. I'm not in touch with these people, and it makes me feel bad because I was close to them at a certain point. We know how that goes. Um, but I hadn't reconnected in any capacity over the last 35 years or so. Uh, but all of his sermons, he was a pastor of a church, and all these sermons of his are still um, archived on the church website. So I've been listening to him. It's been great to hear his voice again and to be reminded of his sense of humor uh, and his deep love for Jesus, man. He just talks about Jesus all the time. And it's so, it's so great to uh, have the, these uh, archived sermons because they're a comfort to me. And they remind me of, of the importance of Jesus. And I'm getting to Soren here in a sec. There's a point to the story. Um, and, uh, but he was, uh, had a sermon about uh, their Shalom series, which is how to have peace, like financially or spiritually or relationally and all these things. And each sermon is dedicated to an aspect of peace. But he was getting into when Jesus told his disciples not to worry. I think Bob, Bob's tone was off a little bit, that he was uh, saying that Jesus is kind of telling us not to worry, but Bob was very objective about it. Like, you know, Jesus is telling us not to worry, so we shouldn't worry. And I felt it was a little bit too simple. And I felt Bob's take on it was a little bit too simple. And I'm reading into it, of course. I think Jesus knows we're going to worry. But I think the, uh, the way I would kind of interpret Jesus' teaching is supposed to be a comfort. He's not chastising us. He's not ordering us. He's like, listen... I love you, and I don't want you to worry about things that you can't control, which is your wealth. You know, you have some influence, but you can't control ultimately some things, and you have to let go of them, otherwise you're going to really stress yourself out. And we have to understand that Jesus came to be a comfort. You know, he came to be a comforting personality, God with us, to provide comfort for us. And I'm going to get into a story that Kierkegaard wrote, a parable about Jesus coming to earth, which is really, really neat. And I know you're saying, come on, man, get to get to Soren here. So I'm getting to him. I'm, I apologize. It's like 15 minutes in. Hopefully this is not a complete waste of time. Um, God will take care of us. Uh, Soren talks about in page 128, and then purity of heart is the well one thing. Then shall not God and the good also take care for their faithful servants, if only they are sincere, with an exclamation point. Uh, Soren has discussed up to this point in this chapter the clever one who avoids taking responsibility and taking on God's call in his life because he's worried about the consequences. He's clever, so he avoids the battle because he's fearful of the consequences. He's fearful of what that might cost him. And uh, Soren wants to give us an encouragement. Again, the tone of voice is super important here. I think it's a comfort then, then he, he writes this, then, then shall not God and the good also care for their faithful servants if only if they are sincere. 
And even if this uh, terrible thing happened, uh, when uh, the sincere person has risked all, all that it was then, it was then that the government said to him, my friend, I cannot use you. So the man has avoided battle like a soldier. And the government tells him, I can't use you now because you've evaded. The battle's over. We've lost or won or whatever, but you played no role. Oh, how clear it is that the smallest crumb of grace in the service of the good is infinitely more blessed than to be the mightiest of all outside that service for God. Soren does get into God here, so in this initial reading that I did, then shall not God and the good also care for their faithful servants, if only they are sincere. Uh, so he's starting to bring God in a little bit more overtly. Again, I, I don't know if that was a tactical decision on Soren's part or uh, just a natural flow of his discussion, but that's unusual that he gets so directly into God here. And he says, and then, uh, this is a little further down on page 129, then he will certainly receive strength enough uh, in the act of decision. And that the one who does not have trust does not receive this strength. So we have to believe that God will give us the strength in order for us to receive the strength. And again, the strength is a bit paradoxical. Maybe strength means admit that you're weak, admit that you're fearful, admit that you have a hard time assuming the responsibility for the battle ahead. I think pride is the most dangerous thing to go into battle with because it's an overconfidence. Overconfidence typically doesn't end well. Confidence is okay. Uh, even a, a sense of uh, self-confidence is okay. But an overwe overweening pride where the, we would think the enemy just doesn't have it and they're going to get their butts kicked. And that may be true, but a lot of times uh, the uh, enemies and the opponents bring a lot more to the table than we realize. And sometimes their strength is hidden. So I think it's good to be humble in battle. I think it's good not to uh, be too proud. I think it's good to, uh, to be... Um, Confident, but not uh, cocky, as the word says. Cocky. Cocky. Think about what that means anatomically. Uh, just passing. Passing strength. Um, before God, it was a great sum of all the world's gold in a single heap. So God will provide the resources, but we have to believe. Uh, we have to believe that he will, and then he will. But not, maybe not the way we expect it. You know, Again, it may happen in a matter of weakness that God will provide strength, because... For example, if you're in a battle, a social media battle or a battle with someone where they're demeaning, uh, they're demeaning us as a person, like they're trying to make us feel worse about ourselves. If we're humble, we say, I kind of agree with you. I'm not all that. You know, I think God has gifted me in some ways, but I have flaws. And um, I was in a situation a couple months ago where somebody was trying to get me to do something I didn't want to do and had said, well, God hates cowards. And I said, that's okay. I hate myself sometimes. <laughs> and the person couldn't do anything because I was kind of playing around a bit, but he was trying to corner me and use my pride against me. And I just gave it up and said, well, if God hates cowards, that's okay because I hate myself sometimes. And that's actually true. That's not a complete joke. There's times I don't like myself at all, uh, but there's times I do care for myself and there's times I probably love myself inordinately. So it just got me out of the corner with the person. They didn't know what to do with that because they're expecting me to comply because they had insulted me. Like, oh, I'm not a coward. Uh, you know, God, God God, doesn't hate me. Here, I'm going to do what you want me to do. It wasn't immoral. It just was an un unwise thing the person was trying to bait me into. When I, when I hit him, well, if God, if God hates cowards, I hate myself some too sometimes. <laughs> the guy didn't know what to do with that, and he just shut up and moved on. That was funny. 
Uh, we also don't have to worry that much about our, our siblings or our wives and children, but I wonder if he as a man and a father could really do anything better for his wife and children than to impress upon them this trust and providence. Um, I used the word siblings before. That's not. I don't feel necessarily responsible for my siblings, but I would feel more responsible if I had a wife or children than if I took on a battle that could go badly. I'd worry about the consequences for my family, for sure. And I think that's the greatest stress of all. If somebody's really engaged in being a good husband or a good wife and a good parent, I think there's a lot of worry that can come with that naturally. But again, I think Jesus' words are a comfort. And I think Soren's words are a comfort that we really don't need a lot for to, to have a happy life. We, we may lack in material possessions, but as long as we have food and clothing and shelter, because clothing and shelter are kind of related. You know, shelter is a form of clothing in a way, uh, especially in places that are cold uh, in the winter. Uh, so Pennsylvania right now is pretty cold, so you need shelter. But that's just a form of clothing. And we need, uh, we need food, which also could be things like medicine because it's for our body. Uh, as long as we have those things, it's surprising how that's 99% of the battle. And for me, as long as I have uh, food and clothing and uh, shelter over my head, and a few books, and my phone, so I can listen to podcasts, and some coffee, uh, and maybe a beer or two, uh, and, and friendship, and compassion, compassionate friendship, collaborative friendship with people, then I'm actually a pretty happy man. I try to aim low in life, because it's not because I'm pessimistic, it's just because it's easier to accomplish. It doesn't mean I don't have dreams or goals, uh, and aiming high is okay. I'm just not banking on it. I'm not, not putting my identity in with whatever I'm doing, whatever success I have. And I want, for example, I want this podcast to be very successful. I'm not lying to you when I say that I would love for it to be the top, the top podcast in Christianity across the world. That would be awesome. I'm just not banking on it. But that'd be great if God wanted to prosper it or top ten or whatever. Um, I'd be willing to go along with that. I'm not looking to make a ton of money. Maybe I could have some swag that I could sell, like Bierkegaard shirts or something, or hats or uh, my own brand of coffee, but um, I'm just not tied to it in the sense that I feel like, well, this this is my last chance to, my last roll of the dice. If this doesn't work, uh, the Las Vegas life that I was hoping for, of being, uh, my name being in lights and on the, on the, on the stage and being a center of attention. If this doesn't work, I'm a complete failure. I'm not processing it that way. And I think you can kind of understand that I'm not because I clearly, if I was more concerned about that, I would do a better job with this in terms of some of the polishing that would be needed. Yet, how could one ever finish talking about the evasions? Who would undertake this fruitless work, this battle with the air? So I love this, this term that um, Soren gets into where he talks about, yet how could one ever finished talking about all the evasions, like all the multitude of evasions, all the trickery that we can take upon ourselves to avoid assuming responsibility for the battle. Who would undertake uh, this fruitless work, this battle with the air? This battle with the air. Um, I love that term. I love how Soren turns a phrase. He, he's a master of a phrase. And if, if, um, if Soren doesn't want to take on this battle, then who will? Because he goes after a lot of battles in terms of addressing terms of taking on the battle and addressing it, this battle with the air. Mm -hmm. This battle with the air. I might name the podcast that. I always worry that I'm not going to come up with a good name for the podcast episode until it's actually over and then a, a theme kind of comes to the, to the top and then I uh, generally 
go with what I came up with. And sometimes it's something that Soren said directly. Um, what shall it profit him if he comes through the world under a full sail, aided by the favorable winds of popular exaltation and popular exaltation and admiration if he runs again aground upon eternity? Uh, Soren was familiar with how um, the seas operated. I want to get to Copenhagen one day, but I think it sits on a on a on a body of water. Uh, so there's obviously shipwrecks and stuff like that that he would have known about. Uh, so all these things that we worry about, all these things that we can't control, which is kind of a stoicism idea that you can only control what you can control. And if you can't control it, you can't worry about it because you don't have any control anyway. And that was one of the reasons why I had to leave school counseling. I, was, I felt like we were being asked to do and have responsibilities for things that we couldn't control. And it was stressing me out. It still stresses me out. It's been a year and a half since I retired, and I still have nightmares about work. And it's never like a tragedy, usually, of somebody like uh, something bad, bad happening. There was a dream one time where these gunmen came into the school and were speaking German, and they were like Nazis, and I had a dream about that, and they were shooting people. That's the only dream I've had that's been like excessively violent that I was caught in. Most of the dreams are kind of a Kafkaesque type of bureaucratic situation where I'm being asked to do something or have responsibility in a situation where I have zero control. Like, for example, getting kids to school. Like, if they're in high school, I'm not talking about an elementary kid who's throwing a fit one morning, doesn't want to get on the bus. I'm talking about a 15 or 16 or 17-year-old doesn't want to come to school. I have zero control over that issue. That's something that if the family and the child can't get that child to school, we've lost the battle. There's nothing I can do to get that kid to school. Uh, so we would come up with these like plans to get kids to engage. And I'm like, you're asking me to do something that I don't have any control over. I can't get the kid out of bed. And if you expect me to knock on their door to get them out of bed, you're crazy. I'm not going to people's households to do that. I was a rebellious teenager in some ways. And I never expected any anybody from school to come get me out of bed or make me go to school. My attendance was pretty good. I came to school sometimes not in the best state of mind. Leave it at that. Uh, sometimes my grades could have been better, although they weren't bad. Uh, I would have been insulted if they thought that it was their responsibility to get me to school. I'd be like, you crazy? And I wasn't even a positive child sometimes. Um, so they started asking us to do stuff that we had very little control over, but they were expecting us to exert responsibility. And I'm like, this equation is a recipe for burnout. So if you're in a situation where people expect you to have high responsibility but little control you got to get yourself either make your peace with it and do what you can or get yourself out of the situation god may call you to be in that situation but you have to understand why you're stressed out that you have zero control and a lot of responsibility i just found it best to leave because i'm like i can't win like i want to be effective and if i'm just writing up these these uh, attendance plans and trying to get kids out of bed in the morning to come to school and this is you know during covid but also before covid uh, COVID wasn't the only issue. It just exacerbated things. I'm like, this is crazy work, and this is dumb work, and this is silly work. Uh, I could do all the plans in the world to get the kid to come to school and do their work, but it's not going to change a dang thing until something changes in the child. I can't provide that to them. I'm not the Messiah, man. Even the Messiah had a hard time convincing people to do things. Jesus couldn't heal people that didn't want to be healed. That's in the Bible. <laughs> they had to leave certain towns because they didn't believe in what he could do for them. And if you don't believe, Jesus is not going to work. He has to have something to work with. And there's a time that God will smite his enemies and 
It doesn't matter if they're cooperative or not. Uh, final judgment, for example, every knee shall bow. Even if it doesn't want to, God will make that knee bow. Uh, but most of the time, Jesus operates by persuasion and by the truth of his words. He doesn't uh, put uh, them in a headlock and tell them to comply. So, uh, that certainly it is not men that stand in need of the good, but that it is the good that stands in need of men. Uh, we need the good. The good doesn't need us. On that account, it is men who must be one for the good. It is a poor beggar that is in desperate need. Uh, so, uh, Soren's kind of poking fun at that idea. Instead of it being men who are in need of the good, and so much in need of it that it is the one thing necessary to them that they must be bought at any price, that it must be bought at any price, that absolutely all must be given up and sold in order to buy it, but also the one who owns it owns all. That's the good. Yet it happens that all are naturally fooled by the deception. Someone makes an attempt to fool the good, which in all eternity inevitably fails. Um, in time, people can succeed with trickery and evasion, and lies. Um, usually it runs out. Usually they wind up running into people that will uncover them or they find people or they come across people that are just as evil and wicked and invasive as they are and they uh, wind up exposing each other. But there are po there's a possibility that people will skate through the entire life without getting accountability. Like karma is an incomplete concept in the sense that if we think that if somebody does um, non-good in this life that they're going to um, pay a full cost for that ultimately in this life um, that's sometimes not true sometimes people skate uh, but the final judgment puts an end to all that there's an accounting at the end and we all come up short we all come up short we need the blood of jesus to cover our sins um, so it's going to inevitably fail in eternity for it seems to succeed for a fortnight or a lifetime is only a jest the clever one on the other hand wins great distinction in the world and he too is fooled. The crowd delights itself with the flattering sweets of imagination and is fooled, is fooled. So we're on page uh, 134. Uh, there's still one, two, three, four, five, uh, five pages in this chapter. I really don't want to get lost in this book. I know sometimes it maybe feels like I am, but there's a lot here to read. I'm going to conclude this for today. I know that I'm going longer too than I've gone. I've was aiming for um, aiming for a twenty-minute podcast, and I don't know if that's realistic or not. Uh, sometimes I have more to say. So anyway, I think we're going to end with Soren there for today. But a few things just to think about in terms of application: that we shouldn't hear criticism from Jesus. We should hear compassionate and its tone of voice, which is so hard to infer, especially in the English. Sometimes, if you get into the Greek. Now, Jesus didn't normally speak in Greek. I'm sure that he could speak Greek if he wanted to. But he spoke a, a version of Hebrew called Aramaic. So we have Aramaic, which is original tongue. And it comes out in certain words in the New Testament and his teachings that he'll use words that are uh, from the Aramaic. Uh, when he's being crucified, he said an Aramaic term. I can't repeat it, but it's a long term. Uh, so the Gospel writers uh, took the Aramaic and translated it to Greek. Uh, and that was like the uh, street Greek. It wasn't the academic Greek. It was, it was Koine Greek, uh, K-O-I-N-E, -K -O I think. Koine Greek, it was like the street Greek. It was the second language of a lot of cultures. Um, so the gospel writers take the, uh, take the Hebraic, Ar Aramaic um, 
um, words that Jesus used, which are very evocative in terms of tone to some extent, because they're, they're more detailed about the emotions and the context of what's going on. For example, when Jesus or when Jesus calls Peter out of the boat, or Peter gets out of the boat when they're in the uh, when Jesus is walking on the water. Again, I believe that's a true story. Um, Peter starts to walk on the water, which is super cool. Like he's like on top of the waves and he's walking uh, to meet Jesus. But then he uh, he uh, lo- he starts to sink. And it's hard in the English to figure out what's going on in Peter's Peter's mind. Like why did he begin to sink? And in the Aramaic, it, it becomes more clear. Uh, and then the Greek, because the Greek is reflecting the Aramaic a little more directly, is that Peter started looking at the waves versus Jesus. He started looking at the um, at the uh, the words kind of connote a lack of focus or an overconfidence, perhaps. So I can see Peter having both things, because overconfidence is often a compensation for underconfidence. So like the most braggadocio person out there, like uh, we can all think of people recently who were president, who are very boastful people. Another word for boastfulness is being insecure, because if you're truly that great, you don't have to point out how great you are. It's like a, it's kind of a, um, a self-incriminating personality style that will tell people how great they are. The sun doesn't have to explain how bright it is. It's rather evident. If somebody thinks the sun's not bright, they've never seen it before. Uh, so a confident person who's truly confident in themselves, I'm not saying cocky or overconfident or boastful or a bully, uh, they kind of they, their actions kind of speak for themselves, right? So a confident person, it's okay to be confident. I think God wants us to be confident, uh, but there's a there's an element which uh, that combines with humility, which is be correctable. I think a lot of times people that are really boastful and uh, egocentric and, and self uh, self promoting, that insecurity can really uh, lead them to overcompensate and be in dangerous situations because they don't accept counsel from people anymore. They always feel like they're being criticized or they know better, so they don't listen anymore, so they miss all these warnings. And I think that happened to Putin in, in the Ukraine, just to mention as an aside. I think his aides wouldn't tell him, like, listen, the Ukrainians are not chums. They can fight because uh, the cousins, their cousins, the Ukrainians and the Russians are both tough people. They're very, they've been through a lot historically. And, man, they live in, in weather that's so damn cold that it's hard not to be tough if you live there. Uh, so the Ukrainians are not like Americans. You know, like we're, 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 uh, we're fat and sloppy, man. And now our military is pretty strong, but we as a people, and the military is like only 1% of our population. We rely on technology to do a lot of our battles for us. Um, most Americans are fat and sloppy, and we could get our butt kicked almost by anybody if it came down to it, uh, just a regular civilian. But the Ukrainians as a people are tough. They're tough people that have lived under the boot of Russia for many, many centuries, and um, and they're cousins. They're related to each other. So, regardless, uh, Putin was overconfident. Is getting getting uh, getting his uh, getting some licks, uh, re- receiving some licks by the Ukrainians with the help of American weaponry. It's making a difference in NATO in general. <clears throat> so anyway, hear comfort in the word of Soren. Hear comfort in the words of Jesus. Just some things before we conclude. Thank you for sticking around this long. If you have, I'll give you a lollipop. Make sure to send me a, uh, an email, and I'll, I'll send out a lollipop. Now, it's going to be an a emoji lollipop. It's not going to be an actual lollipop, just to be clear. I'm only joking. Um, just some cool things that have happened. I got an invitation from uh, Amazon and Audible to submit my podcast to their platform in order for uh, Bickergard to be on Amazon and Audible. 
So it is now on Amazon. Now, Amazon's getting free content, so I'm not exactly getting a prize here. Like, they're getting free content for nothing, and Amazon is the last party on this earth that needs free content. Uh, that's a criticism against Amazon, that it uses its power to uh, capture content and then sell it. Uh, so they're doing that to me. But I'm a willing victim because I don't have any uh, goals to monetize this podcast. Uh, so I just want the word to get out. This is my ministry. I know it sounds silly, but this is what I want to do. I don't want to work with kids anymore one-to-one or in a group situation. I, I don't want to do that anymore. I d- I've done my run. <laughs> when I was asked to go back, asked if I wanted to go back and assume a, a counseling position by my former high school, I declined because I don't want to go back into it. I, I really don't. But I think I still have something to offer, but I want to offer kind of on my terms where pe- if people are not into it, they can walk away. If kids didn't like me at school, they had to deal with me usually because I was their counselor, and sometimes they would try to get me changed, and that happened to me. It happens to every counselor, but it happened more to me because I am brusque sometimes and uh, opinionated. Uh, so I, I didn't like people being forced to talk to me. I, like, if you don't like seeing me, that's fine. Like, that's okay. Like, even though I have strong opinions, I don't expect people to love me all the time. I want it, uh, just like anyone else, but I don't expect it. Uh, and I have a lot of, I had a lot of fans at school. They wouldn't have asked me to come back if, if I was an ogre. Uh, but I had my critics, and I think so I had some good critics, some people that were making good points, and I also had a lot of bad critics. Sometimes the people that were most upset with me kind of deserved to be upset. I'm enough of an egotist to believe that I wasn't always wrong. Um, but I love this podcast because if you don't like it, I really don't care. Move on. Uh, just ask that you don't be abusive in your reviews or, or mention things that I give up already against me. Um, I was watching 8 Mile last night by Eminem, and there's a final rap battle at the end of the movie, which I assume is somewhat autobiographical, where um, Eminem's in a kind of a face-to-face rap battle with another rapper. And Eminem's white in Detroit, which is a predominantly black, black city, so uh, Eminem... Is, uh, is legit. He's got a hard story. His background's broken and busted up. He lives in a trailer with his mom, and he's got a friend that actually shot himself by being a doofus. So in Eminem's rap, he gives it all up when he, when he, ha- he has to start before this other guy. It's, it's, like a, it's like a kickoff in a football game. Like one rapper has to start, and the other one has to respond. So in this rap, uh, Eminem just talks about how his life is so messed up, and like, he lives in a trailer park with his mom, his friend shot himself uh, by waving a gun around and being a being a bum, and uh, you know how he has a shitty job. But then he turns it on the other guy and says, "Well, this dude went to a private school. That's a black guy who's pretending like he's a tough guy." And he tells this black guy's story to some extent, saying he's a he's a poser. He's no thug. He's no he's no tough street guy. His parents are together and have a happy marriage. He went to a private school, and so Eminem takes away all the all the rap material from this other guy who was going to say, do you know he lives in a trailer? Do you know that he has a stupid friend that shot himself because he's a doofus? Uh, that his mom is like a, like a drunk and all this stuff. Eminem gives it all up in, the, in this rap battle and then turns it around and says, but I'm still fighting. I've still got my dreams. I've still got my words. I've still got my, my themes or whatever. Um, so this guy is just totally humiliated and can't, can't, can't uh, attack uh, Eminem because Eminem's given it up already. So I like to be an open book. Uh, if I'm if I'm uh, in need of being criticized, it's cool. Uh, I just don't like people being abusive, and also because this is voluntary. If somebody doesn't like it, I just ask them to move on, man. I've talked talk about this before, but I have to reiterate: there's no compulsion here. If you don't like it, you don't have to put yourself under the chains of this podcast. Um, 
and you know the uh, withdrawal or denial or moving on is an option and there's a lot of people that just don't understand that principle these days they're looking to vent their spleen on people and I've tried to get better at that just avoid battles with people they're looking for a fight there's battles that you're called to and there's battles that you're not and uh, it takes a lot of wisdom to figure out the difference and if you can figure it out you're ahead of a lot of people so just one more thing before I move on and conclude for the day. I think the new standard maybe is going to be 40, 40 minutes because I think 40 minutes is a good biblical number. 40 in the Bible is like 40 days and 40 nights of the Noah flood or 40 days, uh, 40 years in the desert. So, you know, 40 is a number of completion in the Bible. So my new innovation maybe is to take this podcast of 40 minutes. And I don't think this is a waste of time. I enjoy it, but hopefully you do too. I listen to podcasts that are an hour and a half, two hours long, but I have a lot of time on my hands, so uh, maybe that's just me. One last thing, it's just an interesting uh, interesting aside, is I gave up trying to get all my CDs into Apple Music through iTunes on my laptop, because I was finding what was happening is that my iTunes uh, software on my laptop didn't allow me to get the music into my uh, Apple Music on my phone without first putting the album on my laptop. So I was in this situation where I was trying to use my laptop to download these songs and these albums into Apple Apple Music, which are two different elements of the same type of process in Apple. It's a way of playing your music online through your phone. Um, and I have all these CDs because I'm from I'm from uh, I'm from the '80s, man, and the '90s, and I preferred CDs until recently. So I have like 150 CDs of music that I really really like, and I was using iTunes to import it through my laptop. But it was putting a copy of the album onto my hard drive, which was causing it not to download properly into Apple Music. So the thing that I was using as the mechanism or the means of getting this music into Apple Music was actually choking on the albums. I had to keep deleting stuff from my hard drive in order to try to free up the process. And the more albums I put into uh, Apple Music, the more my hard drive was getting choked. So I had to admit I was in a technological suffocation battle where I wasn't going to be able to win. I was underwater. So I just signed up for Apple Music, $10 a month. Um, I didn't know what else to do. I gave up the ghost. I tried to find a way around it, but I've given up the fight. <laughs> and so I'm downloading albums uh, th uh, into, into uh, Apple Music directly on my phone. And my phone actually has a lot more memory and a lot more room on its hard drive. Surprisingly, even though it's much smaller than my laptop, it has gigabytes to spare. Uh, whereas my, my laptop was on its last legs in terms of memory and hard drive space. So it's an irony that smaller is, is stronger and better. Um, so the lesson there is that I tend to try to find solutions sometimes that are not particularly wise to save money. And uh, it's been a good trait, like with my car, my previous Civic, you know, trying to avoid buying a new car, but just getting to a point where I just couldn't figure out the problems were and I had to give up the ghost and just buy a new car and say this is this and this is where I'm at. Or with Apple Music, trying to use iTunes to get this music into my phone. And I can't, I can't use my laptop uh, to sync anymore because every album that I have on my phone will now put it back into, um, into iTunes and then choke my laptop, which I do need for things occasionally, like reading, um, um, like printing things out to read or documents I need for legal reasons or uh, to scan stuff. So anyway, I'm going to end with um, something I had to print out yesterday from my computer, which is I use my laptop for a couple things specifically to print documents out because I do like hard copies of things. 
um, which I need legally or just to read in an easier way and make markup and make notes on. Or uh, I need to scan things like important documents for my dad with his medical situation or you know, tax documents or stuff like that. So Kierkegaard explains Christmas. I'll tell you what. Come back next week. I'll, uh, I'll read this next week. I think I've gone long enough for this week. But this is a really cool story. Uh, Kierkegaard explains uh, Christmas. It's a parable. <sighs> I think that's it for today. Uh, there's a lot here that I didn't talk about. And I talked about some things that I didn't have in my notes. But it wasn't quite as, uh, quite as spontaneous as it might appear. Uh, so prepare your heart in this Advent season to... Uh, to uh, let let God speak to you in a comforting way. Don't don't interpret His words as uh, punishment or chastisement or criticism. Understand when God speaks to us, when Jesus speaks to us, He's speaking to us first of all with a heart of compassion. So if He tells us not to worry and to relax, He just wants us not to worry about things we can't control, and uh, that's a compassionate thing. He's not He's not chiding us. He's not lecturing us. He's not He's not criticizing us. He's just trying to help us, man. So remember that. If you keep that straight, then we're in good shape.